Thank you very much, uh, Deacon Elro. And uh, just such a lovely singing that we did uh, earlier, led by uh, Tong Yin and the team. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, I'm John Wong. Um, they call me pastor here, yeah. But uh, I was sent out together with my wife, uh, Perlin, uh, and our two kids, uh, Jane and Yen, um, for mission work under OMF uh, for 10 years, and we just got back last year, sometime uh, late May. Uh, so we're thankful for uh, the prayers and support that have been given out to us through all these 10 years. Yeah, oh, we went to Philippines. I think I forgot to mention that. Yeah. So you may not have seen me uh, around or I don't look familiar to you for those of you who are quite near to ARPC. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some of you may have forgotten I used to look younger, but now my hair turned whiter. Yeah, but it's okay. Um, just in case you want to follow the sermon, uh, you can find the outline in the bulletin. So, uh, yeah, I can refer to that. So, all right. Just an adjustment to the mic. Okay. Allow me to pray for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, may you be pleased to use your servant to speak your word clearly to your people this morning. Open our hearts to receive it and obey it to do your will. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Now, allow me to begin uh, this morning's sermon with a question. How can we know what God is like? How can we know that we can be sure our knowledge of God is true? And that it's not our own man-made imagination or fiction like a fairy tale? Well, the Apostle John has written this letter called 1 John precisely for this very purpose, that we can be sure we know the true knowledge of God. And that's why he wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is telling us our Christian faith is real as it corresponds to a God who speaks and reveals himself through Jesus Christ, the Son of God in whom we, can, we can have a personal relationship that leads to eternal life. In other words, we can be sure we know our God. So as a quick recap to the context of this letter, do you recall Pastor Edmund pointing out this particular group of people called the cessationalists two weeks ago? And how this group was described by Pastor Jason last week as those who had turned their back on Christ and left for the world. Now, this group was mentioned in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19a, and the slides come up. They went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, their leaving showed that they were not genuine believers in Christ, 
and therefore they have separated themselves and their followers from the main body of believers and so divided the church. They are the ones who saw themselves as having superior knowledge of God compared to what believers John was writing to believe in. For they believe that the physical realm or matter is essentially evil and only the spiritual is true, good and pure. That's why they denied the incarnation of Christ for they could not and would not accept that God the divine would come in the impure human form of Jesus Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters, they rejected that the knowledge of God comes through knowing Christ as, or knowing Jesus as the Messiah who has come from God. In fact, John identifies them as the false prophets or false teachers who have gone out into the world, right? In First uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. For they had denied that Jesus the Messiah has come in the flesh. And so they have failed the test given by John in the first six verses of chapter 4. And to further disprove the claims of the cessationalists that they have superior knowledge of God, John explains what knowing God really looks like in verses 7 and 8, where he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So our first point for the sermon, exhortation to love one another as love is from God implies born of God and knows God, for God is love. Brothers and sisters, can you recall that this exhortation to love is not new? In fact, last week we saw it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Now I hope that the logic or the flow of this logic in words by John in verses 7 and 8 will be, will be, will be clearly shown to you. Right? This logic is not like doing mathematics where 2 plus 2, you'll get 4. Rather, the logic here is relational logic as it's based on the fact that God is love. Right? That's what John wrote in the end of verse 8. So God is love is a, a relational quality. And so it is a key to understanding verses 7 and 8. And so, what do we mean when we say God is love? It's a description of God's very nature. It means everything that God does is an expression of His love. For all His nature is love. Wherever God acts, He always acts in love. And so Scripture reveals for us that God Himself existed as three persons in one, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's where you get the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. But at the heart of this God, there exists a dynamic interrelationship of love. 
For they, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are consistently interacting with one another in love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, the Spirit loves the Father, the Father loves the Spirit. For this loving interrelationship within the Trinity, my brothers and sisters, define for us who are created in the image of God what we are intended for, what we were created for, an intimate relationship with God himself, who is love. And that's why John affirms that love is from God in verse 7. And if God is love, here's the logic. At the end of verse 7, to claim to know God, the word uh, know is in the present tense, right? To claim to know God depends upon the experience of having been born of God. Notice the past tense here, having been born of God. In other words, you can only know God if you are born by God, chosen by God to be His spiritual sons and daughters. And so, as God's sons and daughters, you and I have no choice but to carry God's spiritual DNA or to inherit God's spiritual nature of love. Now, pause for a moment and think about it this way. If God who is love, has given us his spiritual life, the evidence then would be that we'll love one another. For love, our spiritual DNA, is from God. And so if we say we know God and that we are born of God, then the life of God will be revealed in us as expression of his love to others. Question then, is your lifestyle, is my lifestyle, demonstrating the reality of God who is love in and through us? Brothers and sisters, as Christ, or as Christians, sorry, are others around us able to see that we are loving one another? For love is from God. And so now we must agree with verse 8 that anyone who does not love does not know God. For the lack of love for one another is proof of the lack of a true and living relationship with God, who is love. And so John then goes on to unpack for us how we can know that this God is real in verses 9 and 10. The evidence of God is love revealed in His Son. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we have now come to the objective and historical proof in verse 9 that God is love. It happened more than 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born to a virgin called Mary. That's when God sent His one and only Son into our hostile world of lost sinners, who, as God's rebels and enemies, were ever ready to stand in arms against Him. The phrase, one and only, is to point out for us the idea of a son who especially is precious 
and greatly loved by God because he's the only one, just like Isaac was to Abraham as he was born to him in his old age, and so much more. Jesus was sent into a rebel world on a rescue mission to redeem you and I, to reconcile us to God, that we may, ha that we may have eternal life and be alive unto God through Him. This is love. This is show of God's love. And that's why John goes on to tell us in verse 10, this whole act of love was entirely God's initiative. For we did not love God. Not only did we not love Him, we do not want to love Him. God's love was revealed in His Son, sent to be the propitiation for our sins. Now the word propitiation points to the historical fact that Jesus' death on the cross sacrificially happened. The word itself speaks of an atoning sacrifice, the letting of blood through death, so that the just and righteous wrath of a holy God against sin can be fully satisfied and turned away from pardoned sinners like you and I who trust in Jesus. Where forgiveness may be offered and reconciliation with God achieved. So this, my brothers and sisters, repeats what John had written earlier of the ultimate act of God's self-revelation of love through His Son in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, where he said, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I repeat the second part. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Doesn't this echo their very exhortation in verse 7? To love one another? And so we move on now to verses 11 and 12 to see the second evidence that God is love, revealed in His sons and daughters. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, this phrase, if God so loved, points, points us back to the sheer evidence of God is love revealed in His Son. And that's why John reasoned, we also ought to love, as a grateful response to God's love towards us. For no one has ever seen God, but as believers act in love towards one another, it will demonstrate that the unseen God is living in and through us and will be revealed through our act of loving one another. So, brothers and sisters, if indeed we have experienced the love of God personally, we will naturally be a channel of God's love and so pass His love on to one another. For you see, when sinful, self-centered people like you and me are transformed by God's love into people who really love one another, who serve one another, who sacrifice for one another, who accept one another and treasure one another in Jesus, we will truly show that God who is love 
abides in us. For we are God's permanent address. And so His love in us is progressively brought to its perfection, to its completion. And so the only explanation why this is even possible for Christian love is a supernatural explanation. The fact that God has changed us and actually lives in us is supernatural. Where the family likeness is being manifested in us as His sons and daughters who have been born by Him, born of God. Brothers and sisters, let's pause for a moment again and deeply contemplate on these truths before us. An early church father, Tutelian, who lived from A.D. 160 to 220, noted that Romans, non-believers, who observed the fast-growing community of Jesus' followers and exclaimed these words, See how they love one another. See how they love one another. Pause for a moment and think about that. This happened at a time when the early church was the outcast, the low lives, the persecuted, but yet they're able to love one another. My question to you and I, how many people looking at us as God's church at ARPC today will be able to say the same of us? After Jesus had washed the apostles' feet as an example, he said these words in, first, in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. My brothers and sisters, these very words of Jesus still applies to you and I as his disciples today. Let us go on. God is love, assures of three things, an intimate relationship, an eternal security, a transforming reality. First, an intimate relationship. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Have you noticed there's a beginning of the word this in the phrase, by this we know, that Apostle John written there? And what, what is he written about? What is he referring to? What's this? This is referring to the mark of believers loving one another. There's no mistaking about it. For love is a product or the fruit of the Spirit. And this Spirit has been given to us as children of God. Now, do you notice how often the verb abide appeared in these uh, four verses? If we have a slide. Uh, underline it for us there. Right? I've counted five times without counting the unspoken ones. Okay? Verse 13 we abide in Him and He in us. 
right? He actually in us means abides in us, well, not spoken here, okay? Verse 15, God abides in him and he in God. Then verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Now, I think repetition shows the significance of the very word itself, right? In fact, it echoes the very words of Jesus spoken in John chapter 15, verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, I want to remind us, this word, abide, has a deep and significant relational meaning here. It means that the word abide can, can, can mean take up residency, making the place you stay your permanent address. It says you are going to remain there. You're not going to move out from there. It's a sign of your deep and intimate commitment to the place you're pledged to stay in. And so by that, let us change the phrase abide in God and God in us to being at home in God and God at home in us. At home in God and God at home in us. And so my brothers and sisters, this word abide clearly is used to help us see the deep and intimate act of committing to remain within that loving relationship that is happening between God and us. Let me say that again. Abide here is clearly used to help us see the deep and intimate act of committing to remain within that loving relationship that is happening between God and us. And so maybe we can rephrase it this way for verse 13. By our commitment to loving one another, we are showing our commitment to our loving relationship with God and He with us as evidence of the Spirit given to us. Doesn't this echo the same commitment of loving and obeying Jesus, His command to love one another and so remaining in His love? Abide in God then God abide in us. We'll move on to verse, verses 17 and 18. And eternal security. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The phrase by this, at the very beginning of verse 17, refers back to the intimate relationship of God dwelling in us and us living in God's love for us. The phrase, this is how, can also be used for by this, to explain how the love of God is perfected with us. And so John is saying our eternal security is grounded in God's love for us, 
which we have now experienced in that intimate relationship. And did you notice the phrase perfected with us? At the beginning of verse 17, it's also appeared in end of verse 18, perfected in love. This is referring to the outcome of us abiding in God and God sharing His, love, His life with us, where the love of God reaches its goal, its completion, its perfection. Question, how? How is that achieved? It's by us sharing that love of God to other people as well. In other words, this growing love for God overflows into our love for one another, which then evidences the reality of our intimate relationship which God has brought us into with Him, into a loving relationship with Him through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so you see, the result of this love being perfected with us and us being perfected in love is that you and I as believers in Christ will have confidence, will experience no fear for the day of judgment. And this perfecting love at work in us proves that we have a living, active, loving relationship with Christ the Judge, who is also our Saviour and Rescuer, who has already forgiven us through His death on the cross. Will you fear someone who has died for you, even though he's your judge, who has rescued you? Of course not. And therefore, we can rejoice in the assurance of our eternal security as we follow in Christ's footsteps of sacrificial love while he was here on earth. We will come to the third assurance, a transforming reality. Verses 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Verse 19 reminds us that God took the initiative in loving us. And so all our loving is generated by God's love. That is the transforming reality that is going on in you and I as believers in Jesus. God living in us, His love transforming and changing us into the very likeness of Jesus our Lord and Saviour. He's giving us, through His love, the energy, the ability to relate in love to God Himself and to our neighbours. That living love of God residing in us by the Holy Spirit produces the great fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And so, my brothers and sisters, this transforming reality translates into the changes in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we use our time and our money and our gifts and our resources. It translates itself into the change of priorities we have for our very lives. Changes 
will happen. That is the reality when you have the love of God residing in you. Because the proof of it is that Christ will then be directing us in all aspects of our lives. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14a, For the love of Christ controls us, compels us. Is your life, is my life controlled by Christ's love? Therefore, in verse 20, Apostle John is effectively saying, if we claim to be in real relationship of love with God, who is love, how can we not love our fellow brothers or sisters who is equally loved by God? This transforming reality of God's love residing within you and I must therefore show itself in how it changes loveless, selfish people like you and I into loving selfless followers of Christ who sacrificially gave himself for us. Brothers and sisters, we as God's people who do know God must come to love that way too. The way of loving the unlovable, even enemies, for that is the way God loves. That is the way God loves. And so on that note, we come to the end with verse 21, the commandment from Jesus himself. Whoever loves God, who we do not see, must also love his brothers and sisters who is in our midst. So let us conclude with some reflection and applications. Church, how are we doing in our commitment to loving Jesus uh, Christ, uh, sorry, let me say that again. How are we doing in our commitment to obeying Christ's command to love one another? Will people see and sense the reality that God is love through the way we live? So let us examine ourselves before the Lord together. Firstly, let us think about our body life. How is life like in our various discipleship groups? Is mutual love being expressed during our regular gathering for Bible study? That we are growing in our relational love for one another? And not just filling our mind with the Word of God? Think about it. How can we grow in this? Maybe how about celebrating birthdays together like what I saw a DG did for July babies where the ladies baked for themselves a lemony cake while the men joined in only for the eating part. <laughs> now this is just an example. You can think of better ways or of how to have quality relational moments together. Basic, basic use. How can you be showing love towards someone who is different from you, not from the same school as you, or even share the same interests or music or games as you. Remember, our Lord Jesus came to love the unlovables like you and I. Will you then be willing to humble yourself to be the very first one to reach out to them? For who knows, they may 
themselves be feeling inferior towards you. Again, can you think of ways to invite them to chill together with you and your circle of friends? Will you be willing to do that? Church, how's our attitudes towards those who are not like us? Be they in the brothers' and sisters' keepers' ministry among the ex-offenders, or those with special needs, like hearing impaired, or receiving help from our mental wellness ministry? Or how about the domestic helpers in our homes, or even our elderly folks in the Mandarin ministry or Golden ministry? Just to name a few. How's our attitudes towards them? Do we look on them with love and compassion, just as our Lord has and continue to towards us with love and compassion? How can you seek to serve and care for them? How can you look out for them? And maybe even ask, how can you be praying for them? Or at that very moment, as you reach out to them, pray with them. Finally, me as one of the pastors, I shall include us in there. Pastors, staff, elders, deacons, and leaders in ARPC. How can our love and devotion be a reality and shown towards one another? Now, I must mention, I certainly love the way that Pastor Jason defended some of our other pastors last weekend. Here, Adam. All right? I must also mention how encouraged I was when Pastor Jason prayed for me before I started to preach at Bishan last March. We can do so much more to encourage one another, isn't it? Leaders, let us all put on the mind of Christ so that we'll be found standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let us be one heart, one mind, one spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, do you pray for your leaders? Do you pray for us? To be growing in our love and devotion towards one another, so that we be your example as we follow Christ's example. We need your prayers. You ought to be praying for us as well. If ever anyone was to ask you and I the question, what is God like? What will they say? May we be found to reply not with words, but showing by our actions of loving one another, of our evidence of obedience to Christ's command, love one another. For to know God is to love as He is love. Help those who have yet to know God to know His love by loving one another. Let us go to God in prayer now. Dear Lord Jesus, enable us by your Holy Spirit to grow in knowing how high and how wide, how deep and how long, how sweet and how strong is the love of God the Father through you, his one and only Son, 
for us. How lavish His grace and how faithful His ways so that we may go forth to all around us that they may know and hear and see the love of God, that we may boldly declare in both words and deeds how great is God's love towards us. We pray and ask all this in your mighty name. Amen.